I move it quicker. Because as soon as I, it works every time. When I do that, people come, like a lot more people than arrive. So that's why, that's why we do it. These Sunday morning sits uh, used to be more regular and then they got irregular and now we're trying to make them regular again so that it takes a while to get the momentum going. Who's here for the first time? Anybody? Oh, wow. Well, you're not, and I don't mean, I mean here at New York Insight for the first time. Sorry. What? Okay. Okay. All right. And you're, who else was here for the first time? Okay. Anybody new to meditation? Great. I'm John Aaron, one of the teachers here. So welcome. And um, such a beautiful morning. Um, thank you for coming. What we will be doing, um, we'll sit for about 40 minutes or so, which I'll guide part of. Hi. Um, want to sit on a cushion? Have a cushion. Um, so are, are you here for the first time to New York Insight or have you? Okay, great. Um, we'll sit for about 40 minutes. I'll guide um, that for a bit. We'll do some movement. Uh, we'll have time for just questions about practice. And then I want to talk a bit about um, embodiment and equanimity, which will, hi, which will probably produce some other questions. And, uh, and actually, as part of that talk, we're going to do a little embodied practice as well. So hello. So just finding a posture which is upright and alert. So I always, before I get into the topic of the day, I just want to find out if there are any practice-related, direct practice-related questions, anything that came up today um, or has come up for you around practice over these weeks, um, just to sort of see what's in the room. Um, I always find that helpful for me and also for the group. So if anyone has any questions, I have a microphone, which is the talking stick. Yeah. And just introduce yourself to the group. Uh, hi, my name's Oliver. Um, I, I just was reading um, uh, John Capitin's first book, um, which I completely forgot the name of now. Which one? The first book. Um, full like, Catastrophe? Or? Yeah, Full Catastrophe. Yeah, okay. Um, and he just recommends uh, if for, for maintaining a regular practice to either do the sit or the body scan as your main practice. Yeah. But then uh, to also do like yoga for half an hour at another time in the day and to have a mindful meal, I think essentially the three components. Does that make sense to you as a daily practice? Well, who am how I? How often do you practice, I guess, is a question. How often do yeah, I practice? How often and for how long every day and what do you do? Oh, now we're getting personal. Well, if you, um, if you don't mind sharing. No, it's fine. <laughs> um, who am I to question John Kabat-Zinn? Although I do, <laughs> sometimes. Um, 
<clears throat> my personal routine is when I wake up in the morning, I do about 15 minutes of yoga. Uh, and then I'll read for a bit, and then I'll sit for about 30 to 40 minutes. I'm in the fortunate position that I also teach meditation. So the teaching itself is practice. Um, both just the teaching, but also because I get to sit with whoever I'm teaching. So that's an, you know, I have that advantage. Um, and, you know, if you have that time and luxury to be able to do that, it's great. Um, if you don't, uh, then, you know, sit a bit every day. If you can do yoga for a bit, it's just good for the body. Um, and then once or twice a week, come to a group, whether it's here or somewhere else, you know, and just kind of enliven your practice a bit. Um, and and I know, you know, that book was written in the late 80s, I think. Uh, and the neurological studies show that obviously the more you practice, the more impact it has on your brain, you know. And uh, when you sit for 10 minutes, you can reach a certain level of calm, perhaps. When you sit for 20 minutes, you can actually start turning towards your experience a bit more because you've reached that level of, a, a certain level of tranquility. When you sit for 40 minutes, um, in a sense, you have the opportunity to actually face slightly more challenging issues you know, just because sitting for that long may be challenging, or maybe not. But it's like every every increment you add to your every increment of time you add to more more things are likely to arise, which gives you an opportunity to turn toward that and really work with that. So it's and um, I would say that there are sometimes when you're sitting for a, a duration where you hit a wall. It's like, I can't do it anymore, you know? And you want to get through that, because it's like, after you get through that, then something shifts. And then there are other times when you're sitting for a duration and you don't want it to end. So it's just, you know, the, it's just a place of experimentation. And if we treat it, if we treat it as an experiment every time we sit, and if we, and you know this, because I've talked about it in class with you. So, you know, if, if you treat it as an experiment every time you sit, regardless of how long you've been sitting, if you come to it with, with beginner's mind every time you sit, regardless of how many years you've been meditating, then you just never know. Um, and to me, the most important thing is regularity and consistency, not duration. Um, and I'm sure that you've noticed if you've been, for those of you that have a regular practice, those days that you miss, you know, you know that something's shifted a bit. You know. So, um, you know, sure. So, if, yeah, if you've got the time to take John Kabat-Zinn's advice and uh, do 20 minutes of yoga and 40 minutes of sit and one mindful meal, great. But for the rest of us, you know, we do the best we can. Um, and don't give ourselves a hard time if we if we miss. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Hold on. I think that 
Netflix.com. Uh, and what's your name? Um, Barbara. Barbara. Um, I get up quite early and find that I'm very drowsy and off on work days. Um, so often it's a dilemma. Do I push through the meditation? Am I going to get a deeper level of rest by forcing myself or just lay back down and rest? I don't know if that's an answerable <laughs> question, but um, it seems to... push. What do you mean by push yourself? Just force myself to... To sit. To, to sit, yeah. As opposed to sleeping more. Huh. Okay. I mean, I, my thought is it's is a deeper level of rest. My hope is that it's a deeper level of rest by meditating. If you're going to so when you're forcing yourself to sit, are you falling asleep while you're sitting? Um, sometimes. Yeah. That's a hard question to answer because, you know, we all have different biological clocks. And... Um, It can be that meditating is a deeper level of rest if you stay awake. And if you fall asleep, then you're falling, then you might as well just sleep. I mean, while you're sitting. In other words, if, if, if in the process of meditating, after you've woken up, you fall asleep, then you probably need to sleep and let yourself sleep. Um, but again, it's, that's, I mean, others may have different answers from their own experience. I happen to be a morning person, so that's not an issue for me generally, but, uh, and this is where the yoga might help, because yoga wakes up the body. Um, and you could also do walking meditation and see what that's like. Yeah. So that's, that's another place to experiment. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, if, it, if, if your body clock is such that, you know, you're, you just have a hard time getting going in the morning, or you feel you need that sleep, then you should sleep. Um, but ex again, I, to me, it's just experimenting and, and finding the right combination. Um, it's hard to prescribe. Yeah, yeah. Right. Sure. Okay. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else? Okay. So yesterday I was at um, I was in Philadelphia and on a for a family event, but we were sort of having not been to Philadelphia for quite some time. Why won't this go off? Oh, there we go. I got it. Um, my sister had bought tickets to this place called the Magic Garden. Um, you been there? Yeah, so the magic, it's, it's kind of an, a, a unique place. It was a, a, a created by a man named, an artist named Isaac, Isaiah Zagger, um, who's a mosaic, who does mosaics. And he moved to the South Street area in Philadelphia, like in the uh, 60s, I think. And it was one of those typical urban situations like we almost had here where they wanted to build a highway, you know, right in the middle of the city just to connect to other highways. But the artists had moved into this area and started, uh, and he in particular started putting mosaics up on these walls. And um, 
and he he lived in a house and he sort of put mosaics up all on the uh, on both external walls of this house and then there was a vacant lot next to him that was uh, where he um, and a building on on the other side that he like got permission to put a, a mosaic up there and then that lot happened to be owned by some commercial real estate developers so as the movement took place and they were able to stop the highway and of course as always happens then the real estate values change and people want to do developments and uh, he basically though took over this lot and 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 you know then the developers wanted to rip out the the art that he had created in this lot and the community got together and created a foundation and bought the lot so now it's this amazing uh it's hard to describe, I mean, because he uses all sorts of bits of found art, basically, to create these mosaics. And you walk in, and it's just, like, mind-boggling. I mean, just imagine this room filled with glass and, and ceramic shards and just kind of, and bicycle wheels and all sorts of bottles and all this stuff, and it's just coming out in every direction. You know, if, if you've never been there, it's kind of worth it. But if you Google it and just get see pictures, you'll, you'll get an idea. The only place that sort of comes close to it, or that it reminded me of, was the um, Barcelona and the, the Gaudi Cathedral, which is, you know, that kind of wildness. But it also sort of, I looked at it and I thought, wow, here's the mind, you know? It's like everything at once. It's like all this stuff coming up at once was one thing that hit me, you know? and. You, if you sit down and just look at one portion of the wall, you would see a lots of things, you know. Or if you open up and you see all this other stuff, you know, it's like um, you realize like all these little fragments are happening all the time in our mind. You know, there's just continual fragments popping up. Um, and then occasionally we'll focus in on one. A lot of these fragments, though, were mirrors. <laughs> so you're looking at yourself. A lot of these fragments you could just see through and you see all people on the other side, so there's all sorts of movement happening. And, um, and he clearly, you know, it's not like he did that much planning of this, but he just kind of improvised as he went along. And he would decide to put something in one place and then draw some lines that would sort of guide him. Um, but then all of the objects were pretty much found. He did make some of his own tiles, but a lot of things were just given to him or he found them on the street. Um, I don't know where all the bottles came from. There was rumor that he had drunk everything in those bottles, which you know would explain a lot of what was on the walls, I suppose. Um, and so a couple of things you know, came to me as I was experiencing this. One is, you know, this is the mind. <laughs> on one level, you know, that occasionally we find stillness and clarity, but basically, you know, can we just sit with all this stuff and be at peace? Um, and, uh, and the other was this, this improvisatory nature of the work, and, and any of you that have, have spent any time studying with me, you know, know that I'm, I'm very interested in this idea of improvising life, that or rather life as improvisation that you know we try to control things but really when we let go of control life will just unfold in a very natural way and 
And, and the moment we try to get in the way of that is the moment we actually start to suffer. Um, and so here is this art that's just like completely wild and improvised. Um, and, you know, you can sit in this garden and still find a level of peace. Um, so I was... Uh, um, uh, just before uh, going to this, I was doing some reading and, and uh, teaching with one private individual that I work with and talking about embodiment. And as some of you may know, uh, when we talk about insights, when we talk about vipassana, about seeing clearly um, there are three levels of insight. Uh, the first level of insight is that of just the conceptual insight. So we have the conceptual insight of impermanence. So we can understand conceptually what impermanence is. That's one level of insight. Or we can have the conceptual insight of, of, of suffering, of, of discontent. You know, we understand conceptually what that is. We have the conceptual insight of confusion or delusion, and we understand what that is. So that's one level of insight. The next level of insight is uh, the experiential level. So we can experience suffering or we can experience discontent for ourselves. We, we sort of know experientially what that means, etc. And this third level of insight is 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 really the embodied insight. And that, that people always are confused about what that actually means. You know, what is embodied insight? How is it different than experiential insight? And um, another way of defining embodied insight is knowing that you know, um, which is, is very different than experiential. So experiential, there's the, the me experiencing it. There's, the, there's, you know, I experience discontent or I experience impermanence. Um, the embodiment, the, the embodied insight, the knowing that I know is actually feeling it embodied. It's feeling it in the body in a way. That there's no question. That there's no there's no uh, separation between the event that's being experienced and the experiencer. There is just the embodiment of that. Um, and um, this embodiment is also, in my mind, directly related to uh, equanimity. Um, <clears throat> so equanimity is uh, equanimity is balance, right? And in order to be balanced, in order to have balance, one has to be fully embodied. One has to be fully in their body to experience balance. Um, if you're off balance, let's say physically, if you're off balance, you know, it's because you are not fully present in your body. Um, so, uh, in those moments, 
in those mo- in those moments when freedom from any of these when, when freedom from uh, suffering is present, there's a knowing of that. Okay, it's not an experiential knowing; it's just a knowing. <laughs> it's not a me experiencing that freedom. It's just this freedom that's present. And what does that feel like? So if we actually go back to, if we look at equanimity, and I know that there are some of you here for whom some of these teachings are new, um, but equanimity is seen in three major teachings, Buddhist teachings. It's found in three of the major Buddhist teachings. Um, first, it's found as one of the divine abodes. So it's loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. It's seen as the tenth of the perfections of the heart, which include generosity and uh, virtue and uh, um, renunciation, etc. I'll come back to that. And it's seen as the seventh of the seven factors of awakening. And it's interesting to me that it's always the, the last of these three teachings. So it's, it's the fourth of the divine abodes, it's the tenth of the paramis, and it's the seventh of the factors of awakening, which makes it, and, and teachers often refer to it, and it's for, re, for you know, good reason, as the kind of crown jewel of practice, this idea of equanimity. And yet, at the same time, one has to have a level of equanimity in order to achieve any of these other practices, in order to achieve any of these other qualities of mind. So. Um, we can have uh, we can have loving kindness to a degree, right? We can all practice loving kindness to a degree until we get to either that place in ourselves that we're not particularly happy about, or we get to that person we're not particularly happy about, and then we can, you know, sort of try to have loving kindness for that person or that part of myself and yet we get stuck you know we we get stuck we we can only get to it to a point we can we can sort of begrudgingly have loving kindness for that part of ourselves that we don't like we can begrudgingly having have loving kindness for that person who's really a problem in our lives we can begrudgingly have loving kindness for some experience that is really not pleasant if we actually cultivate equanimity and balance at the same time, and if we work, if we, if we don't wait for the equanimity to arise, but we actually recognize that it's possible at any time, then that loving kindness for the part of ourselves that we're not so sure about is actually possible. in context of the factors of awakening. So for those of you that are new to those factors, for whom it's not clear, um, the seven factors of awakening are mindfulness, so that's the first factor, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Now, 
if you're sort of working, uh, if you're cultivating mindfulness and we find obstacles in the way of mindfulness, so we then investigate those obstacles and you know, in that place of investigation, we find ourselves you know, finding something that we're really not happy about and we try to fix that, then we're not coming at it from a place of equanimity. The moment we actually try to fix something, we're not in a place of accepting it. Okay? Equanimity, another way of looking at equanimity is that it's a place of acceptance. And that we come to a place of acceptance and as we're, as we're holding this from a place of acceptance, something can shift both in our mind and perhaps in the experience itself. So it's really opening fully to any experience. So equanimity can be seen as you know, really opening to whatever is there and not shutting it off, not turning away from it. So that's another way of kind of experiencing equanimity. Um, and uh, if we look at it from, uh, we'll come to questions, don't worry. If we look at it, just continuing with these factors of, a, uh, of awakening, so one of the factors of awakening that's sort of in the middle there is tranquility, or samadhi. Um, what keeps us from tranquility? What keeps us from tranquility is wanting things to be other than they are. The moment you want things to be other than they are, or the, the moment that you're striving for tranquility, you will never have tranquility. So if we can accept things as they are in this moment, that's a place of equanimity, and that will allow tranquility to arise. And from tranquility, then this, the next factor of awakening is, is concentration. And the next factor then is equanimity. So it's, it, it keeps circling back. That it's really um, this practice of equanimity, this idea of equanimity, this state of equanimity, is this state of acceptance. Um, and we can experience that in, on so many different levels. And uh, if we also start from a place of, from the paramis, from the perfections of the heart, the first of those is generosity, and the second of those is morality, is, is virtue. Um, so uh, one way of working with generosity um, is, in a sense, recognizing that uh, that we have this ability to kind of balance things out, right? That uh, by holding back from being generous, we're actually not allowing things to be in balance. Uh, we're holding on to something, whether it's, it's money or whether it's um, kindness, whether it's friendship, whether it's contact, there's something that we're holding back and that we're holding on to. And 
just in that holding on to, things become a little out of balance. And so we can bring equanimity to the practice of generosity. At the same time, as we practice generosity, it allows, gener- it allows balance and equanimity to also come through. As we practice morality and, and virtue, uh, it allows equanimity to sort of shine through. Um, so uh, we miss many points in our lives when we are actually being equanimous and don't actually recognize it. Um, and, and it's really important to kind of see that. Um, and in our formal practice, formal meditation practice, um, you know, we sit anchored in the body, we sit anchored in the breath, and that anchor, which we can sort of view as a seated mountain pose, right, is what holds us steady. And this steadiness is what allows us to be equanimous. So once we kind of settle into the breath and the body, as things arise, difficult things, difficult thoughts, difficult emotions, can we hold them steady in this place? Can we keep steadiness? Or do we get pushed around? And it's kind of interesting, um, and we may experiment with this in a minute, just going back to you know John Kabat-Zinn's idea that we should do yoga, right, 20 minutes or whatever, you know, as part of our daily practice, you know, yoga. A lot of the yoga practices involve balance and involve a stability, um, and so the physical, the physicality of equanimity is is kind of important to take note of and to experience and to embody, because it's through that embodiment of equanimity that we can also experience it on other levels in the, on the on the uh, on the level of the mind um, and <clears throat> I just want to experiment so if we all I think we're an even number if you all stand up and just find somebody to partner with so whoever's next to you and um,
So the standing mountain pose is, is you know, one embodied experience of equanimity. Um, and I think what I'll do is just guide us for about 15 minutes in a mountain meditation, which is another embodied experience of equanimity. Um, so this idea of embodiment and equanimity, I think, are really important to to uh, to hold hold in the mind because it's we, we forget sometimes that our physical that, that having this embodied experience actually changes how we're experiencing things in the mind um, and so the idea of embodying a mountain actually helps equanimity arise in the mind um, so I'm going to guide this practice. We'll do a short practice. So how many of you, I know some of you have done a mountain meditation. How many of you have not done a mountain meditation? Okay. So it's a nice practice. So come into a seated posture which is comfortable and upright. So closing the eyes. and bringing into the mind's eye the image of a mountain. This can be a mountain that you know well, or it can be a mountain which is just one of the imagination. So envision the base of the mountain the slopes of the mountain, the peak of the mountain. Imagine your legs and sit bones as the base of the mountain, your torso as the slopes of the mountain your arms as the slopes of the mountain and your head as the peak of the mountain. Imagine this mountain covered in clouds, but realizing that the mountain hasn't changed, it's just covered in clouds. Imagine all the beings that are living on the mountain. on the surface of the mountain and just under the surface of the mountain. 
Imagine the mountain in the heat of the summer. Or in the midst of a major storm. Underneath it all, the mountain is just the mountain. And allowing yourself to embody this mountain, to be this mountain. Stable. Alive. able to hold all these changes. Weather patterns constantly changing. Activities impacting the mountain on the surface, but mountain is mountain. Breathing with this mountain.
Now that was a very abbreviated version of this practice. And you have to set aside ideas, well, what if there's an earthquake? You know, the mountain would change. Or, um, but in a sense, this idea of mountain is uh, one can equate mountain with awareness. Awareness is awareness. Things pass through awareness. Awareness isn't changing. Awareness is simply knows. The mountain knows. The mountain doesn't change. Things around it change. Just like things around awareness change. Or we have different experiences, but awareness holds it all. The mountain holds it all. Um, and this is equanimity. This is this idea of, of balance, this idea of being able to be with experience. Um, and uh, that state of mind where as Ajahn Suchido says, that state of mind where agitation stops or where uh, excitement stops. So we have activity that's happening within the mind, but then there's a, then there's a, a state where it's just presence. Okay? And uh, equanimity is this ability to simply be fully present for whatever is coming up whether it's coming up within our mind or within the mind of another as we're being with someone uh, or in the experience of another as we're being with that, we're being fully present and in a balanced place. Um, and this is something that you know, we cultivate over time, but it's, that ability is, is there in all of us. Um, and you know, these days in particular, um, with the climate being what it is, I, I mean, not just the environmental climate, but the political climate and all of that, you know, if we can hold that from a place of equanimity, uh, in a place of equanimity, that allows us to act in a much more fruitful way. Um, and that's hard, but it's possible. And that's really why we practice. Um, so I'm going to stop there because I know there may be some questions, but I am curious to know just in this little experience of the mountain meditation or in the experience of the pushing in a, in a standing mountain pose, sort of what you noticed in that embodiment. You know, if anything was a surprise to you or um, you know, maybe in other experiences that you've had where the embodiment uh, of equanimity um, has made a difference. So, the floor is open. What did you experience in the mountain meditation, if anything?
Yeah, Diana. Being pushed, um, I sprang back. I felt I'm like a sponge. In other words, it was like feeling like a sponge, where you, or a sponge will spring back into its original position. I was pushed a bit. I'm not talking again earthquakes, mm -hmm. but the image for me was powerful. As I sat down, I thought, "What happened here?" Well, no, I just rotated back up right. physically. Yeah. Upright. Yeah. That's what I have to say. The image is sure. still with me. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Robin. I found it was more disruptive to push than to be pushed. Which was something I never thought about. Uh-huh. So it was disruptive in what way? Um, not in sort of a negative way, but I had to think about how much pressure I was mm. you know, to be gentle and also, uh, you know, how much okay. push, and I actually right. was more off-balance by pushing than ah. to be pushed. Yeah, well, that's interesting in itself. Yeah. So I get the concept of, like, the mountain and, you know, being still and dealing with everything, the environment around you while still being flexible and spongy. Um, but what if you have to change? Mm -hmm. Like, does that mean as a mount when you're a mountain, you can't change? No, of course not. But what, when you say you have to change, meaning what? Like, um, say, like as a person, you have a certain perspective, right? That may be flawed, right? Um, how do you like? Yeah. Does that mean you shouldn't change? No, of course you know? not. Like, um, how do you? So, I'm trying to resolve these yes. two ideas in Got my it. head. Got it. So let's let's look at the the map of the paramis, so the map of these 10 perfections. Right? So all of, these, all of these Buddha's teachings are basically forms of maps. Maps of, you know, we can look at them as a road. Right? So um, the, first, the first of the paramis is generosity, and then we have um, virtue, then we have renunciation. Um, <coughs> to write them down because I always forget the order. Not that it matters. Um, uh, right, so truthfulness, resolve, loving kindness, etc. So any of those, so if we, if we say, rather than thinking of it as needing to change, so if there's a quality, a character, you know, a quality of mind that you're not happy with, let's say, um, or that you feel isn't sort of, that needs uh, shining, <laughs> polishing perhaps, you know, um, that's where these paramis sort of are helpful, right? Now, you can be very judgmental of yourself for having whatever quality of mind it is that you're not happy with, Right, or right. So that judgment, that judging, is not really helpful to improving that quality or to changing that quality. Right. In fact, I would say it's probably detrimental to trying to change that quality, you know, because it's just getting in the way. Whereas, if you recognize 
from a place of balance and from a place of equanimity and from a place of acceptance that that quality of mind that you're not particularly happy with is a result of a whole series of causes and conditions which have nothing to do with me or you, right? Then you can hold that from a very different place and actually the change starts to happen, okay? So rather than thinking of you doing the changing, what you're actually seeing is more clearly what the quality is, why the quality may be that way, and in that seeing, the change actually starts to happen. And in the seeing from a place of balance rather than judgment, the change starts to happen. That's my experience, right? So that um, there's a recognition, there's a seeing clearly, ah, this, um, there's a, you know, I'm behaving this way because of this, right? This habit of mind, let's say. That habit of mind is a result of all sorts of causes and conditions that are not personal to you, or you can take them personally, but that's not really helpful. You know, you start to see, ah, oh, yeah, this happened and this happened, and, you know, however that uh, is seen, that's the investigative aspect. Um, but all of this from a place of acceptance, okay? So it's, it's, it's accepting that as it is, but recognizing that it is possible to change in that moment. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So, because what I was hearing was, oh, well, like, you know, I, um, uh, I need to change because I'm bad or whatever, you know. Yeah. It heals. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And using like the other approaches, the path, like facilitate that healing. Right. Yeah. But like the mountain, right? If the mountain has a forest fire, that's obviously going to do a lot of damage. And yet the mountain can heal itself, hopefully. I mean, you know, in normal circumstances, the mountain will heal itself. The f- Right. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. What's your name again? Uh, my name is Davis. Davis. Because I trust the process. 
I don't think that makes any sense whatsoever. It's more of a so, thinking about. So I think what I'm, I'm hearing is, it's okay. Um, can you pass the mic? Um, what, what I'm hearing is, thanks, is that there's change happening all the time, even in the mountain, is what you're saying. Yeah, and that change is somewhat organic. Um, and that, or, or, you know, maybe under the surface. Uh, and of course, you know, you're looking at it from a, a scientific place, you know, and that's cool. But in a sense, you're right, right? So that there's, there's the surface change, which is constantly happening, and is, is uh, short term, right? Uh, and then there's other kinds of changes, which are perhaps, you know, deeper. And yet, the mountain is still mountain, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, we can take this image and take it apart and dissect it all, all, all sorts of different ways, you know, but the idea of this, I, this, embodied, this embodied equanimity, you know, which we are all capable of. And what I'm really, you know, working with here is the idea that if you physically embody it, that will also have an impact on how you, um, how the mind-body interacts, yeah, um, and vice versa, yeah. So, um, play with it, that's what I would say, is just play. Um, and while it is the crown jewel, in a sense, you know, because equanimity is really a place of freedom. Um, and it could be seen as being up here. We are all capable of it at any time. Any time. You know, and we have to recognize that. Uh, and know it when it's present. So let's sit for just a minute. So may the merit that we gain from our practice this morning and our practice throughout the weeks, months, and years, may that merit be shared for the well-being of all without exception. May all beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering, free from fear and the causes of fear. May all beings be free, and may all beings find peace, and may all beings be held in equanimity, find balance,
stability and strength. afternoon and hope to see you again soon.